Job chapter 29. We return to our study of the book of Job. The last four weeks we've been looking at the Christian and politics. But today we come to chapter 29 and we'll actually be looking at three chapters, 29, 30, and 31, which I call Job's last stand. After this, Elihu will speak and then God will speak. But let's back up a bit and to tie it in with what we've been looking at the last few weeks. The last thing we heard from Job before this last stand was what is called a hymn to wisdom in Job chapter 28. It consists of three stanzas, two refrains, and a finale. And just to review briefly, Job speaks in the first stanza of human ingenuity or the genius of mankind. He describes the wonder of humanity in terms of abilities, intellect, persistence, curiosity, vision, courage, industry, discernment, creativity, and insight. And then there's a refrain in verse number 12. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? How do human beings have all of these abilities? Where did they get wisdom and understanding? Well, the second stanza begins to answer that that wisdom is not found in the ingenuity of humanity. We might think that for all the abilities of humankind, we would be able to comprehend the value of wisdom, know where to find it. But sadly, for all our ingenuity, that is not the case. We search for it as though it's a commodity or something to be mined, and we fail to appreciate its real value. So the second refrain is in verse number 20, Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? And in the last part of chapter 28, we we come to understand that wisdom belongs to God alone. He is the source of wisdom. And in the last verse, we have the finale. And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Human beings on our own, we cannot discover the way to wisdom. We can only find wisdom by fearing God. We can gain understanding by shunning evil, those things that are wrong. Fear is, in fact, the appropriate, is the proper response in the presence of a holy God. We are to bow in submission. We are to acknowledge God's greatness and our own limitations, our own finiteness. And shunning evil is the proper response of one who desires to please a holy God. If God is holy, then we don't want to indulge in things that are unholy, if you wish. Wisdom is, in fact, the way of living before God. And Job understands that. I would argue that this chapter, chapter 28, is, in fact, Job's response to what his friends have been saying all along. They have one central argument, and Job is countering that argument, I would say, in chapter 28. And what is their argument? That Job is suffering because he has committed some great sin. They view the world in terms of cause and effect. The effect is Job is in dire straits, and the cause is because he has done some great sin. And they seem to do this, at least the presentation is, because they believe that God is so holy, so transcendent, that in fact, he is uninvolved in our lives unless we do something wrong. 
So if you just go about your life normally, that God's really not bothered with you. He's not concerned. But if you mess up big time, then the hammer's going to come down. God is going to be angry with you. In the process, what his friends have done, and I don't know if they're even aware of it, but certainly as their arguments progress, it becomes clearer and clearer. They have dehumanized human beings. When you think only in terms of cause and effect, then human beings cease to be human beings. They become things, if you wish. In chapter 25, the last speech from one of Job's friends, Bildad, he says among the four arguments he makes is that man is not redeemable and man is insignificant. In fact, in the last two verses, he says, uh, this is Job 25, verses 5 and 6, if even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm. That's how he sees human beings. And this really shouldn't surprise us, because the last time Eliphaz, who seems to be the oldest of, of the three friends, the last time he spoke, it all boiled down to one question, and that is, is God interested in humanity at all? And his answer is, no. No, he is not. See, in a universe that is seen as being governed by cause and effect only, then why should God be concerned at all? Human beings are reduced to something less than human. They're merely things that are sort of pushed back and forth by cause and effect. To tie this in to the sermon on Christian politics, God has a purpose for his creation. There is a telos. It's all going somewhere. But the modern age has rejected this, and the modern age thinks only in terms of cause and effect. Before the modern age, people saw the world as filled with divine purpose, as manifested in every aspect of creation. But the modern world, as they began to discover certain things, they came to see the world purely in terms of cause and effect. Now the real world, as the modern person sees it, disclosed by the work of science, is not governed by purpose. It's not governed by purpose because who knows what that purpose is, but by natural laws of cause and effect. If you discover the cause of something, then in fact you come to understand it. No need for purpose. No need to understand what's going on. No need for tell us. Where it's going, there's no need. And yet, purpose remains inescapably part of what it means to be human. We want to have a sense of purpose. We want to know that our lives have meaning. So what we do is, having rejected a divine purpose and having rejected the notion of purpose, we then set up our own sense of purpose. This is what will give my life meaning. If I become famous, if I become rich, if I get this, I get that, then in fact my life will have meaning and purpose. Job will have none of this from his friends. And we should not either in the modern world. Leslie Newbingen was a missionary in India from 1936 to 1974, some years off in between. Um, he retired from being a missionary in 1974. And when he returned to the West, he came to see the West as a mission field. He'd been on, quote unquote, the mission field in India. But coming back to the West, it's like, boy, the West is just as pagan. Uh, it is a mission field. He wrote a number of books, most after he left India. But in his book called Foolishness to the Greeks, the Gospel in Western Culture, he noted the following. 
He said, I have often been struck by the fact that among the Hindus who are leaders in theoretical and practical scientific work, I have never detected any such conflict between science and religion as we have in Europe, or as we have had in Europe. The reason is clear. The Eastern religions do not understand the world in terms of purpose. The symbol of the dance is an interpretation of movement and change without invoking the idea of purpose. The Bible, on the other hand, is dominated by the idea of divine purpose. Think of karma. You do something wrong, something bad will happen to you. It's cause and effect. The idea of divine purpose is gone. If we're not careful, that will creep into our thinking as well. To look ahead in the last chapter, and this is from the ESV, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. But that's down the road. We'll get to it, Lord willing. One last thing before we get to this last stand. Our initial reaction, perhaps my initial reaction, I won't speak for you, is to be cautious about Job 28, maybe even alarmed, because it seems to have such a lofty view of human beings in praise of human beings. I think part of the reason for this is because we know that only God is to be worshipped and we are deeply suspicious of anything that glorifies humanity. Also, we believe that human beings are flawed, they are fallen. The Reformed doctrine of total depravity. We're like, yeah, Job, I think you've just gone too far in praising human beings. But I think in part because we keep forgetting that human beings are made in the image of God. They have value. They're not things. And they're not animals. They are a reflection of the Creator. This is not an insignificant thing, and yet we so easily forget it. But I think it's also, if you want to get less theological or less biblical about it, it's because we live in a world in which there is, in fact, an assault on humanity the individual, the value of life. This is happening, I think, and most people don't even realize it. Our age is an age of cynicism, um, cynicism and great irony. As the church, we are to be a countercultural influence against the, the, the culture that surrounds us. We are to give the world what it does not have and desperately needs. And one of those things is a high view of what it means to be a human being. We are to be the true humanist, to stand up for the greatness of human beings. And yet, for all this wonderful truth about what it means to be human, we need to remember that all our abilities, all our wisdom has come from God, not from ourselves. And therefore, we have Job 28. I would say, by the way, if human beings are not significant, then the book of Job is a waste of time. And Job's pleas of his innocence, it's ridiculous. If it's all cause and effect, then it makes no sense. So now he continues in chapters 28, I'm sorry, 29, 30, and 31. And here in chapter 29, he looks back on the good old days, his past happiness. Then the present, which is not nice. And then finally in chapter 31, he will assert that he in fact is innocent. And in fact, 
chapter 31 is more a response to what Eliphaz said earlier. And Job sort of lists all these sins and says, I am not guilty of these things. One writer has written about this. When we first met Job, we admired him. When he suffered great calamity, our hearts went out to him. When he stood his ground against cruel friends, we sided with him. But now, when he builds around himself a picket fence of eyes, the pronoun I, he is hard to like. But we need to recognize what Job is doing. Having established in chapter 28 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, now in his final presentation, he recounts his past versus his situation, and the argument that his friends make in terms of cause and effect does not stand up, and he is innocent of the charges that they have made. Three chapters, we'll be reading the entire three chapters bit by bit. Bear with me as we go through. First of all, chapter 29, the glory of the past. Verse 1, Job continued his discourse. Almost wistfully, he remembers the details of his glorious past. First of all, verses 2 through 6, God favored him. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. See, Job's relationship with God is much more than just him doing sacrifices like we read in chapter 1. Like, in case my kids screwed up somehow, I'm going to do this sacrifice so God won't be angry. He remembers that God watched over him. He lit his path. There was intimate friendship. And he remembers his kids, his 10 kids who were killed. He remembers them and the prosperity he enjoyed. Then verses 7 through 10, the fame that followed him. When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside. And the old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking, covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed, their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. He had the respect of the young and old alike. Those in high society, the nobility, the chief men, they listened to him. It's the good old days. And then righteousness covered him. It's not simply political clout or economic wealth. Verses 11 through 17. Whoever heard me spoke well of me. Those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. He lays out all the things that he had done back in the good old days, helping those in need, the poor, the fatherless, the dying, the widow, the blind, the lame, and the needy, and even the stranger, someone who has no legal standing in the community. And then he had physical well-being, verses 18 through 20. I thought, I will die in my own house. My days are as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach to the water, and the dew will lie all night on my branches. My glory will remain fresh in me, my bow ever new in my hand. 
He was a healthy man back in the good old days. He thought he was going to have a long life, a long, long life. And finally, in the last verses, verses 21 to 25, he was a leader. Men listened to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. They waited for me as for showers and drank in my words as the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king among his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. Indeed, things were really good for Job before all of this happened to him. Now in chapter 30, he speaks of the agony of the present. If you look at chapter 30, verses 16 through 19 are are critical, and I'll read them here, but I'll read them again later. And now my life ebbs away, days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones, my gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds my head like the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. But he keeps going. Verse 20. I cry out to you, O Lord, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. The three sections here, but there's an overlap. The first is in the first 15 verses. He goes from being respected to being a joke. The respect we saw in chapter 29. Now we hear about him becoming a joke. Verse 1, but now they mock me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Of what use was the strength of their hands to me since their vigor has gone f- had gone from them? Haggard from want and hunger, they roamed the parched land and desolate wastelands at night. In the brush they gathered salt herbs, and their food was the root of the broom tree. They were banished from their fellow men, shouted as if they were thieves. They were forced to live in the dry stream beds, among the rocks and in the holes in the ground. They brayed among the bushes and huddled in the undergrowth. A base and nameless brood, they were driven out of the land. And now their sons mock me in song. I have become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they throw off restraint in my presence. On my right, the tribe attacks. They lay snares for my feet. They build their siege ramps against me. They break up my road. They succeed in destroying me without anyone's helping them. They advance as though through a gaping breach. Amid the ruins, they come rolling in. Terrors overwhelm me. My dignity is driven away as by the wind. My safety vanishes like the cloud. So he goes from being respected to becoming a joke. This is on the human level. In the next section, he goes from having God's favor to God being his, God's brutality against him. Verses 16 to 26. And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. 
Night pierces my bones, my gnawing pains never cease. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death in the place, or to the place appointed for all the living. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in his distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. In the final section, verses 27 to 31, we see that Job goes from being a healthy person to someone who is now close to death. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My harp is turned to mourning, and my flute to the sound of wailing. In chapter 29, Job prays God for the time, for the good old days, if you wish, the time of exaltation. Now he blames God for his humiliation. And if we're not careful, we, will, we might think that Job is really getting very close to the line uh, between complaint and blasphemy. But I would have you remember, think of these words in the context of the passion of Jesus. Rejected by human beings, rejected by God. This is what Job has experienced, or what he thinks is happening. This is what we hear in the passion of Jesus. And now he makes his case, finally, this is the final representation in court, that he is innocent of the things that his friends have accused him of, either by insinuation or, or directly. By the way, so far it's been sort of a, the good days, the bad days right now. It's, and so it's either or. You know, it's, it's, it's binary, if you wish. It's black and white. Um, so th- this sort of leads us to the conclusion that either Job has done something wrong or, in fact, he hasn't. And why he is suffering remains a mystery. But Job insists that he is innocent. You'll note that in chapter 29, the key is when. Job spoke about the past. You know, back in the days when these things happen. In chapter 30, it's but now. Okay, this is what's happening to me now. But in chapter 31, it's if this is true, then what's going on? If this is not true, then why are these things happening? In Job's days, it was the right of the accused to hear the charges against him. It's also the right of the accused to plead not guilty by setting up an if-then sequence. If I have done this, then this is the punishment. If I have not done these things, then I should, in fact, be acquitted. 
we now in court and other situations have to raise our right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. In the ancient times it was, if I in fact am lying, may I be cursed by God. In chapter 31, Job lists 14 specific sins that either his friends have specifically or implicitly accused him of, and he proclaims his innocence. The first sin is that of lust. Verses 1 through 4. I have made a, or I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. For what is man's lot from God above, his heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not for ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? It's all found in the first verse. Job says, I've made a covenant with myself. And I would say, seemingly knowing his own weakness, he says, I've made a covenant. I'm not going to lust after a woman. Secondly, he is not going to lie. Verses 5 and 6, if I have walked in falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. In other words, I, I've not lied. I'm not a person who practices falsehood or deceit. Then covetousness, verses 7 and 8, if my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes or my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown. May my crops be uprooted. You know, your eyes, uh, I think covetousness oftentimes begins with the eyes. You see what somebody else has, and in fact, you want it. And Job's like, no, I'm innocent of covetousness. What about adultery? Verses 9 through 12. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, or may other men sleep with her. For that would have been shameful, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have uprooted my harvest. In other words, Job's like, I'm not guilty of adultery. I'm not. If I have been, then let other men commit adultery with my wife. But I am not guilty of this. I am innocent. What about mistreating his servants? This is the fifth sin, verses 13, 14, and 15. If I have denied justice to my men servants and maid servants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did, he not, did not the same one form us both within our mothers? I've treated the people who work for me with respect because they are made in the image of God. God made them as he made me, and I am innocent of mistreating those who work for me. What about those that don't work for you, but who are afflicted, those who are poor? Verses 16 through 18. If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared him as would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow. Job's saying, I take care of those in need. I am innocent of any charge that I have mistreated the fatherless or the widow. Continues with the poor in verses 19 and 20. The failing to clothe them. 
If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment and his heart did not bless me for warming him with the fleece of my sheep. In other words, I've taken care. When people needed clothing, I have clothed them. What about the weak who need justice? Verses 20, 21. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. You know, a person who has influence, I mean, Job's good old days, you, you wouldn't want to go to court against him because of his reputation, because of the respect that people had for him. He could use his position, but in fact, he did not. He did not trust in his wealth. This is the ninth sin, verses 24 and 25. If I, put, if I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands have gained. Or, uh, the tenth sin is idolatry. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor, so that my heart was secretly enticed, and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Full moon, it's a beautiful thing. Actually, my favorite phase is that, that tiny sliver of a moon. And you see it and you're just amazed by it. And Job says, listen, if I, you know, if I kiss my hand and raise it up to these celestial beings, I would be guilty of idolatry says, I haven't done this. I'm not guilty of idolatry. What about the 11th sin? Delighting in another's misfortune. Verse 29 and 30. If I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his life. What is the German word, schadenfreude? when you delight when somebody else falls flat on their face. Job's like, even if they're my enemy, I haven't done this. I am innocent of this. The twelfth sin, failure to show hospitality. Verses 31-32, If the men of my household have never said, who has not had his fill of Job's meat? But no stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler. It's a man given to hospitality. Thirteen, he concealed his sin and did not make confession. Verse 33, if I have concealed my sin as men do by hiding my guilt in my heart because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. And then finally, and I find it interesting that Job includes this, abuse of the environment. Verse 38, if my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat, the weeds, and weeds instead of barley. And finally at the end, the words of Job are ended. I don't know if you noticed, we skipped some verses did you notice that? In verses, verses 35, 36, and 37, I didn't read those. 
that once again Job cries for justice in the midst of listing all of these sins he's not committed. He just, it's almost as though he can't help himself. Once again, he makes a plea for justice. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I, sound now, I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. Like a prince, I would approach him. You see, each sin that has been mentioned is in fact a personal and public sin. It's against humanity, against the rights of human beings, and it is against the law of God. And each of them bear severe consequences. There are punishment. These aren't like, oh yeah, my bad, I, I shouldn't have done that. There are, in fact, consequences. Otherwise, by the way, the power of a law is in the punishment. Okay. And Job's like, I've not done these things. Here, let me sign. Here, here's my defense. Let me sign it and, and present it to God and see if, in fact, he can say that I'm guilty of these things. One conclusion that I cannot avoid is that Job was a rare very rare individual. How many of us, how many people would in fact dare to submit their character and their conduct to the scrutiny of both human beings and God? In this, Job is hard to like because he puts us to shame. Rather than dealing with each of the 14 sins, I just want to consider what this chapter tells us about Job. Job confesses his weaknesses. That's why he makes a covenant with his eyes. He begins his defense by admitting that he is, in fact, a human being. Otherwise, why would he make his life an open book? He is finite and he has fallen. The second thing we see is that Job's love goes beyond duty. He not merely shares his bread with orphans, but he raises them as his own children. He avoided idolatry. His wealth was not his God or his hope or his confidence. He was a very wealthy man, but that's not what he put his hope in. He modeled hospitality and he cared for God's creation. Not only did he not steal or covet other people's harvests or crops or land, he did not violate the land. He did not rape the land. In these three chapters, we're given three portraits of Job. What it was like in the past, pre-book of Job. Like how wonderful his life was that he lived in great relationship with human beings, his fellow man, and with God. And then in the second chapter, we hear what it's like from Job's perspective to be plunged from this height of being blessed by God to this pit of darkness and suffering. But in the third chapter, chapter 31, I think we get a clear picture of how Job viewed other human beings and how he viewed God. In the good old days, in his present, and one would guess in the future as well. He treated people with respect and with kindness. Was he a man of faith? 
I think these chapters prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that in fact he was. Job's pain and anger and sorrow do not drive him to despair, but they drive him to God to make his case before the Lord God Almighty. Job has nowhere else to turn but to God. Something's happening in Job's life. He doesn't understand it. His friends do. Cause and effect. You did something terrible. That's why these terrible things have happened to you. They're not thinking in in terms of divine purpose. But God does have a purpose. Let me do a spoiler alert here. Job is never told what that purpose is. We get to the end of the book. God never explains to him what happened. Another spoiler alert, we're not told what God's purpose was. We know about Satan going to God and saying, hey, you know, look at Job, he only loves you because of all the good things. We know that. We still don't know what God's purpose was. We do not. I think as a church, church here in this country and around the world, but in the present and the modern age, we need to recover the sense of purpose with the understanding that we will not understand or know what God's purpose is. At the end, when the telos, when we are with the Lord Jesus, then I think we may understand, but at that point we may not be that concerned about it. The illustration or the metaphor that's been used is that of Uh, those who do needlepoint, those who do embroidery, that if you look on the backside, all you see are knots where the thread's been tied. And it's not very pretty. When you go on the other side, then you see the picture. We're on the backside, okay? We're on the backside. We don't see this beautiful picture that God is embroidering in human history. We only see the backside And sometimes it's not very pretty. Take Job. Certainly not a pretty picture. But God has a purpose. It can't be cause and effect. If we're reduced to cause and effect, I think all is lost. The psalmist tells us that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. You know what that means? It's not cause and effect. If it's cause and effect for everything we did wrong, we would suffer for that. But he doesn't treat us that way. God has a wonderful purpose in our lives. And I'll go out on a limb here. I don't think he will tell us what that purpose is in this lifetime. By faith, we trust that he does have a purpose. We may not understand what's going on in our lives. That's okay. That's okay. What we need to embrace is that God loves us and he has a purpose for our lives and for everything that happens in our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, all things being equal, we'd rather have easy lives. We'd rather have smooth sailing, not a bumpy road. We'd rather not have difficulties or illness. 
that's not the case. And you are our Father. You are the God of the universe. Our lives are in your hands, and you have a purpose for everything that happens to us. There are times when we wish you would just let us peek behind the curtain and see what it is that you're doing, why it is that we suffer these things, why do we have to go through sorrow and grief, but you love us and you have a purpose in our lives and the lives of all humanity. It's all going somewhere. May we be like Job, a man of great faith. And may we trust you. I thank you for bringing us together on this day to worship you. And I ask that your spirit, your grace would go with us wherever we are this coming week. Once again, we pray for our country, for the election that is going on. There would be peace, not chaos or violence. As your people, may we remember who you are and who you call us to be. All this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.